Good morning. The, just as a correction, if you have your handouts, I uh, forgot to send Pastor Ed the sermon in a sentence, so <laughs> I'll give it to you real quick. It is, sermon in a sentence, if you want to write it down, is being godly in a godless world means our longings, identities, and lifestyles must bring honor to Jesus Christ. All right, let's go to the Lord for help. Our God and Father, we we thank you, Lord, today. Lord, I pray and ask that you open up the meaning of this text to your people, God, for our growth and our spiritual transformation, O Lord. Lord, help me to proclaim the truths of this text so that your people would see your glory, God, and grow in their knowledge of you. Lord, I admit that I'm entirely dependent on your help this morning for any sort of effectiveness, God. So I pray, Lord, that you would help me today. God, I pray that you would uh, help me to rightly divide the word. I pray, God, that you would help us all, God, to see your glory. And, Lord, I pray that you would help me in particular to call your drifting people to repentance, to edify those people who desire to walk with you more, and to encourage those who are demoralized. So, God, help us this day as ever. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Who are you? Who are you? How do you define yourself? Or where do you find your identity? So in times past, this kind of question, it didn't have the kind of urgency that it has today. But in our day and age, in our culture, these questions and the answer to these questions have an incredible, incredible impact on a person's life. And to make matters worse, We uh, live in an environment where our identities are bound up in our achievements. We define ourselves and other people according to our strengths and our weaknesses or our accomplishments. So we can end up living under this constant, constant pressure to perform and do more and do better. So we measure ourselves and other people in this way, even though many of these things that you're measuring them with are outside of our control. I want you to think about how many people lost their jobs because of the decisions made by the government during COVID. Or think about the number of people who lost their homes during the financial crisis in 2008. So if you're a person that finds your security or identity in your financial status, it would be impossible to find any kind of rest in these types of situations when your financial situation is under the control of external forces. So in response to this, what our culture has done, it has encouraged particularly young people to look to another place to find their identity, and that's to look inside themselves. So there's this prevailing notion among younger people to look, if they look inside, that that's where they would find their truest selves. That they're being told that they're living a lie or that they're being inauthentic if they don't live according to the way that they feel inside. And that's just as sad as the first option, if not worse. Because your feelings are fickle and they're just as unstable as the stock market. So there can be no hope no surety, no confidence in a person trusting their heart or their feelings to find their true identity. Not to mention the fact that looking inside of yourself to find your true identity can only be true if God does not exist. That can only be true if you do not have a creator. And that can only be true if that God and that creator has no right to define who you are. But that's not true, family. That's not true. 
The Lord is God. The Lord is our creator. He did not leave you in the dark to grope around to try to find the answers to these questions. He did not leave us at the mercy of financial markets and governments and your own fickle feelings to try to figure out who you are. This passage that Pastor Ed just read makes clear that our identity is inextricably linked to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, Peter, he's using uh, all of these various descriptions and all of these names and all of these titles about the people of God to help us understand our true identity in Christ. He's using these images and weaving them all together to explain what it means to be the people of God. And all of these titles and names, they define for us what it means to be godly in a godless world. So family, what we have to do is we have to resist the temptation and the tendency to look to anything or anyone else other than the Lord Jesus Christ to find our true identity. The Apostle Peter, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, is laboring verse after verse after verse to show the people of God how you ought to define yourself and how you ought to respond to your true identity. So he helps us to rightly understand what being godly in a godless world means. So being godly means we must long for the word of God. You find that in verses 2 and 3. Being godly, we must identify with the cornerstone. You find that in verses 4 through 10. And being that you are godly, you must live as honorable warriors. Honorable warriors. You find that through in verses 11 through 12. So all this summed up is what our sermon in a sentence was. Being godly in the godless world means that all of our longings, all of our identities, and our lifestyle must bring glory and honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? So just as a recap, Pastor Ed last week, he blessed us mightily in the previous passages, or actually the previous weeks, I should say. And I'm going to respectfully disagree with Pastor Ed because he said that the first 12 chapters was the best part, and I respectfully disagree with him because this is. Right? <laughs> Pastor Ed preached about loving each other in the midst of suffering last week. And he said that the central function of the church is to love God with everything, and that the second most central is to love your neighbors. And then he said out of that love, the Great Commission is an application of those two functions, right? And if we, so if we love God and love our neighbor, we'll go and make disciples. Then he encouraged us to, to be intentional about our love for one another, to have the right motives and attitude, attitudes when we love one another. So that message he preached last week is absolutely critical to understanding this one. So, because, so, so today's message is about... Um, our identity as the people of God. And you're going to find out later that this identity is based on a group identity, right? So therefore, you can't obey the commands that Pastor Ed was saying last week to love one another if you're not a part of the one another's. You understand? You can't love one another's by yourself. The other thing you need to know is that the the structure of this passage, it might seem a, kind of a little bit odd because we start at verse 2, and I have to admit when Pastor Ed gave me those passages, I was like, why would you start at 2 and not 1? But after reading and reading and reading it, the structure makes me very happy, family. Very, very full of joy. Let me explain. If you look at verses 2 and 3, what you see there is an imperative. It's a command, something telling you what to do. Verses 4 through 10 is an indicative. That's simply a declaration, telling you what's true, telling you who you are. And then verses 11 through 12 is another imperative, telling you what to do. That, my friends, is called a sandwich. 
And just like any good sandwich, the best part is in the middle, right? So we're going to spend most of our time in the second point, verses 4 through 10, all right? So that brings us to our first point, which is verses 2 through 3. Being godly, you must long for the word of God. Look at me with verses. Look at me in uh, P- 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. Word of God says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So here the the apostle Peter is giving a command to the church by way of an inverted if-then command. So whenever you and I talk about an if-then statement, we usually put the if first. So that's what we're going to look at first. We're going to look at the verse 3 at the the if part of this portion of this statement. And verse 3 says, if indeed you have tasted. So I just want you to know that even though if indeed that you have tasted that the Lord is good is at the end of the sentence, tasting that the Lord is good logically precedes what you should be doing. That's the most important part. Okay? In other words, the command to long for spiritual milk is for those who have already tasted the Lord's goodness. Right? That's the, that's the, the necessary precondition is that you know the Lord's goodness. So those who have tasted the grace and the goodness and the redemption of the Lord, you ought to have a longing for the pure spiritual milk. So I want you to notice what's happening here in this passage. This phrase, tasted that the Lord is, tasted that the Lord is good, what this is, is it's an allusion. It's a, it's a reference to Psalm chapter 34. So in order for us to really understand the point that Peter is making here, we need to go back and read a portion of Psalm 34. Here, listen, this is what it says. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. So now we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, 2, with this backdrop of Psalm 34. We can understand Peter's point a lot better here, right? So based on what we just read, I want you to notice what Peter is doing here. He, he, he's pulling this idea from Psalm 34 and he's using it to reveal two truths to the people of God. He's telling us what is true about a godly person and what they ought to do in response to that. What's true about a godly person and what they ought to do in response to that. So he's defining an aspect of the identity of the godly and simultaneously commanding them to a particular action based on that identity, okay? So in a sense, he's saying, remember those godly people that you read about in Psalm 34? If you identify with those people, you got to obey this command. That's what he's saying, okay? The godly are those who've tasted that the Lord is good, and in response, you should be longing for the pure spiritual milk. Make sense to you? For the godly... What that means is this then, family, that our identity as the godly, if you consider yourself to be a believer or a godly person, 
Your identity is linked to your experience with the Lord's goodness and grace. The godly person is the man or woman who blesses the Lord at all time and his praise is continuously in your mouth. The godly person is the man or woman who makes their boast in the Lord. The godly person is the man or woman who magnifies the Lord with other godly people. Okay? The godly person is the man or woman who knows and believes that because of, the God, because of God's goodness, you will never be put to shame. The godly person knows and is certain that the Lord saved them and delivered them. The Lord did it. And the godly person is the person who can say with unwavering confidence that God is good. That's, that's, that's the identity of a godly person. Okay, so if you are a believer in here today, and what that means is, the family, is that your identity is bound up in the fact and the experience that you've tasted the Lord's goodness. You must not look inside of yourself to find this identity, family. You don't look inside of you to find out if the Lord is good. You look to the Lord to find out if the Lord is good. Amen? If your feelings are in conflict with the idea that the Lord is good and what the Word says about Him, guess who's wrong, family? Your feelings. If the world hates you and ridicules you for being a believer and you getting all this persecution and you feeling all this suffering and you get the urge to say or feel like the Lord is not good, it's not true. The Lord is good. So if you said amen to all of that and you believe these things that I just read, this command is for you, family. This command to like newborn infants, from verse 2, long for pure spiritual milk, that this command is for you. And what the, the scriptures are doing are exhorting you, exhorting those who have tasted that the Lord is good to long for pure spiritual milk. That's the command. So the question is obviously, what is pure spiritual milk? So the, uh, the apostle Peter, I'm sorry, uh, the apostle Paul and the author of Hebrews used this illustration of milk before, right? But they use milk in the sense of like elementary or foundational teachings, right? About the faith, and then they say like, the, they say that, okay, so that milk needs to be replaced. You should be moving on to, to, to meat. Peter's not using the term in that way. Don't think that he's using it that way. He's not using it that way. Okay, Peter is referring to milk as this necessary food. How do we know this? It's two ways. First, we kind of miss this in English because of the translation, but the word he uses, pure, is a play. It's a word play on the word deceit from verse 1. So verse 1 says, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That, it's, a, it's almost the same word with a, with a prefix. So, so it's word play. Okay, he's saying instead of desiring to tear one, one another down, instead of desiring to, um, to um, have what your other brother have, which is envy, instead of having that desire, you need to have a different desire, which is pure spiritual milk, okay? Then the second, if you look at verse 3, he says, I'm sorry, if you look back at verse 2, the second half, he says, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So he's we know he's not referring to elementary teachings because uh, he's saying that this pure spiritual milk is what leads to maturity. This milk is what grows you up into, not to be saved, but to make you an adult in the faith. Okay? So, the way Peter is using the term, I'm sorry, the way Paul in, in, in the book of Hebrews uses the term, a believer is supposed to move on from that milk to meat. But the way Peter is using the term, this pure spiritual milk is absolutely necessary, absolutely necessary for your spiritual growth. Okay? So on account of the wordplay and the way that Peter's using the term, we know it doesn't, it doesn't mean something that you're supposed to move on. So what does it mean then, right? So Peter describes this milk as pure spiritual milk, uh, 
And one commentator says that we need to understand this, this term pure is somewhat as a, of, a, of a technical term, which alludes to the language of the marketplace. Um, in, in Peter's day, it, he says, this is what the commentator says, uh, consumers in the ancient world were all aware that milk or wine could be watered down by hucksters and that it was commonplace for them to sell diluted wine or milk. So this word pure means unadulterated. The, the literal translation of this word is undeceiving. So in other words, this spiritual milk must be pure. It must not have any corrupting errors in it, unnecessary additions or additives, and it can't be watered down. Okay? So Peter is telling the godly person to long for the... And so we know... Okay, so last week when Pastor Ed was preaching, he was in verse 25, and it says this. It says, But the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Okay? So, if you, and if you just keep reading, it's in a sense, chapter 2, verse... The rest of this is a continuation of that same idea. It's an outworking of that same idea. So when Peter is saying the godly person must long for spiritual milk, he's referencing to the gospel, to the word of God, to the word of the gospel. And it must be pure, it must be unadulterated, and it cannot be watered down. It cannot have unnecessary additives and errors into it. So Paul does not only tell us in this verse what we ought to be longing for, but he also illustrates how we should be longing for it. Right, when he says, like newborn infants at the beginning of verse 2. So anyone in here with, uh, who has a, ever had a newborn or has a newborn or a little brother or a little sister, you understand that babies, infants, have an insatiable appetite. Okay? They scream, they cry, they demand it, and they will not be comforted and satisfied if you do not give them milk. You get a hungry baby, you start tickling them, playing with them, put them, it don't matter. They just want milk. They don't want nothing else. You, nothing you do is going to satisfy them. Amen? So what, what, what Peter is saying here is that the godly, the people who have experienced the goodness of God, you're supposed to crave the, the word of truth the same way. If you know the Lord and you've tasted his goodness, nobody's going to have to tell you to go look for him. That's what he's saying. I ain't got to tell you to read your Bible. I ain't got to tell you to, I don't got to tell you to go get donuts. Okay, you just go get them because you love them. Right? That's what he's saying. If you're a godly person, I ain't going to have to tell you that. You're just going to crave it. That's what he's, he's commanding you to have that attitude. Right? So he's telling the people of God what to do, and this is the way you should be feeling about it when you do it, right? So family, this command is all-consuming. You understand? It's all-consuming. He's telling you what to do. He's telling you how you're supposed to feel. He, God wants your heart, okay? He wants your heart. When you obey him, he, want, he wants your obedience to be from here, okay? That's what he's saying here. You know, he wants your actions, your attitudes, and your affections. He wants your obedience to be from your inner self, okay? Let me give you a negative illustration of how not to do this, okay? My wife, many, many moons ago, my son was sick. She woke me up. It's like 2 in the morning, and my wife used to say this thing. It was just a language thing, okay? She would say, she, so she wakes me up, and she goes, do you want to go to the store and get the baby some Tylenol because he's sick. And I responded, I don't want to go, but I will. So, men, two things, don't ever do that. Okay? Secondly, don't, that is not how God wants you to obey him. Okay? That is not how God wants you to obey him. If you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then you obey him because you know he is good and the commandments he's giving you are from the hand of a good, loving father and he's doing what is absolutely best for you. Amen? So the Lord's commands, 
the Lord's restrictions, the Lord's warnings, the Lord's disciplines, and all of your suffering, you can approach them with joy in the right attitude if you believe the Lord is good. So this is the attitude that God wants you to have when you obey him. He tell, you read a commandment, you find out something that you're supposed to do in the scriptures, and this is the attitude he wants you to obey him with. Yes, Lord, I will obey, but not because I have to, but because I get to. You get that? Because I get to. I get the privilege of you being good to me. So in, in verses 2 through 3, Peter commands the godly to desire something, to desire something different than the godless people around them. And that, namely, that thing is the pure spiritual milk, unadulterated word of God. And then he shifts our attention to how the godly identify with Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, compared to how the ungodly, the godless world rejects him. You find that in verses 4 through 10, which tells us and brings us to our second point, being godly, being godly, we must identify with the cornerstone. I'm going to read verse 4. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this section of scripture, this passage that I just read, is connected to the previous passage uh, when Peter uses this phrase, as you come to him, because he still, or if you remember when we just read Psalm 34, the verse 11 says in Psalm 34, come, O children, I will teach you to fear the Lord. So this is, a, he's still carrying on uh, the illustration or the allusion, I should say, from Psalm 34. So Peter's saying, just like the godly in Psalm 34, then he starts to describe you, the people, the, the godly people who are coming to him, okay? But then he does something really interesting. He just immediately, before he even finishes the phrase, he, he uh, gives you of the description of who the him is that you're supposed to be coming to. You see it? He says, as you come to him, comma, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So he's not talking about you right there. He talks about you later. Right there, he's talking about the one that you should be coming to. That's a description of the one that you're coming to. So what's interesting about this description is that Paul uses this, this, this phrase, this term, a living stone in verse 4. And Paul's given name, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not Paul, Peter, Peter, excuse me, Peter, Peter, Peter. Okay, uh, Peter's given name is Simon, but if you remember, the Lord changed his name to Cephas, the rock, right? So even though Peter embraces this name, um, and in this verse, though, when he's informing believers of their identity, right, he's pointing them to the living stone and not himself. It's almost as if he's saying, I know Jesus gave me this name rock, but I don't want you to look at me. I want you to look at the true rock, Okay. So understand, family, that Peter is showing the people, the people of God, he's showing the people of God their identity, but he knows he has to begin with the Lord. He has to start there. When you start talking about being godly and your identity in God, you have to start with Jesus, okay? So because the reason for that is because the identity, the status, and the standing of the people of God before God right, are, are entirely depend on the status, the identity, and the standing of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're bound up together. So listen to this. According to Peter, all that we are as, as the people of God is based on what all that Jesus is, okay? So look, verse 4 and 5, it says, as you come to Christ, the living stones, what are you? Verse 5, you're a living stone. In verse 5, he says, Jesus is the cornerstone, and God is building us into a spiritual house. 
that rests on that stone, right? And then look again at verse 4. He says, Jesus is chosen and he's precious. And if you look at verse 9, which we'll get to later, he calls you that. He calls you chosen, right? Your identity, our identity as the people of God, our identity as Christians rests entirely on your union with Jesus Christ and nothing else. Do you hear me, family? Nothing else. If you start to tell yourself the lie that your identity in Christ is bound up in something that you do, you're getting ready to wreck it. Okay? Don't, do not tell yourself the lie. Do not tell yourself the lie that when you die and that you stand before God, you are there and, and, and he's going to pronounce, say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, because you're that good. Because you're not. It's entirely, entirely based on what he has done. Amen. Okay? Look at verse 6. I want you to read this with me. It says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So what this is, is this is a combination of quotes from Isaiah 28:16 and Psalm, the 118th Psalm, verse 22. And in both of those passages, if you go read them, it's, it, it's claiming that the Lord is going to lay a foundation stone and then build something around it, okay? And in the Isaiah text, it says that the Lord is promising to build this shelter and be a shelter to the godly in contrast to the shelter of lies and falsehoods that the ungodly has built for themselves and that the shelter that the Lord is building, it'll be in Zion, it will have a sure foundation, it will be a precious and tested and sure cornerstone, and whoever believes in it, when the day of judgment, it says overwhelming judgment comes, you will not be put to shame. Okay? And then in the passage, Psalm um, 118, verse 22, it says that the Lord will build and lay a foundation. But in that passage, the emphasis is on the fact that the, the ungodly will reject the cornerstone. And then Peter goes on here in verse 7, and he says, So the honor is for you who believe. Right? The honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So this again, he quotes 118 Psalm 22 again. But then this time, it's, he quotes uh, Isaiah 8, 14 through 15. And in, in, in Isaiah 8, is the Lord is commanding Isaiah to honor the Lord as holy, to fear the Lord. And then goes on to say that the Lord is going to become either a sanctuary for the people of God or a stone of offense and a stumbling block for the unbelievers. Okay? So, and Paul, and Peter, I keep saying Paul, I apologize. Peter, okay? <laughs> Peter is familiar with this passage, because in Matthew 21, Matthew 21 is the, we know it as the parable of the wicked tenants, okay? Jesus Christ is, is, is in one of his famous confrontation with the, with the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel, and he claims, he talks about the story where um, the Lord sent his, uh, it's his vineyard, and the Lord sends his, his messengers, and they beat the messengers and throw them out, then he sends his son, and they kill his son, Okay? And then Jesus claims to be the cornerstone, right? And then he quotes this verse. He says in Matthew 21, 42, he says, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So what Peter is doing here, okay, he's portraying Jesus as this cornerstone, but also... Not only is he, he's, he's, okay, so he's portraying him as a cornerstone, but then he's like fleshing out the implications of what that means, okay? So 
when he's saying that Jesus is the cornerstone, what he's saying is Jesus is the most important person as it relates to your identity. So every person on planet Earth that has ever walked this Earth, their identity is bound up in their union or rejection of Jesus Christ. You, you following that? Okay. So what reveals a person's true attitude about God is whether they reject Jesus or they're united to him. So if you really want to know if a person loves God, ask them what they, what is their, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? That's how you know what a person really believes about God. Every man, every person will have to do with the Lord. So Jesus Christ is either going to be a safe haven for you or a rock of offense. Okay? He's either going to be a sanctuary. He's either going to be a refuge. Or he's going to be a place to flee when the waters of God's judgment start to rise. Or he's going to be your judge. There is no in-between, family. Your pride, your money, your beauty, your goodness, none of these are going to be a refuge or security when you stand before God. It has been appointed once for man to die and then comes a judgment. You better be on the rock. The only shelter that can withstand the coming judgment, God's holy, righteous anger for the sin that you committed is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only sure, secure shelter that you have. So I'm asking you, what you going to do, family? What are you going to do? Is it going to be Christ or what is it? Is it Christ or not? Choose. This day, choose what it's going to be. I also want to bring your attention to something else that's interesting in this passage. Okay? The descriptions of Jesus in this passage are all singular, but the descriptions of the people of God are all plural, okay? So what that means is we must take from this truth that our identity in Christ necessitates you joining a community, okay? God saved you from one group and put you in another group, okay? If you identify with the Redeemer, that automatically means you identify with the people that he redeemed. Automatically. Okay? The freelance Christian who follows Jesus but is too good, too busy, or too self-sufficient for the church is a walking contradiction. You battling common sense. If you remember Pastor Ed's sermons last week, right? In verse 1, it says, So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And he talked about this list of sins and how this list of sins need to be shunned by the people of God. But family, this is not an arbitrary list. It's not just, God didn't just, oh, I just need uh, Peter, and, and the Holy Spirit didn't inspire Peter, and was like, you know, I'm just, just grab some sins. Let's just throw them in there. That's not what happened. Okay? If you pay close attention, every one of these sins will destroy a community. Right? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, they will destroy this church. They will destroy a church. They will destroy a family. They will destroy a nation. These particular sins, right, they're here because of what was coming next. He's talking about your identity in the community of the people of God. So you got to get rid of all of this. This got to go because of what it's going to do to us if you don't. Right? So Peter assumes that coming to Christ and identifying as a godly person automatically means you come into the church. That's not a thing that you can love Jesus and not love his people. You didn't get that from the scriptures. You made that up. Okay? The identity of the living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
is what establishes the identity of all believers. Okay? So if you look at verse 9, Peter presses deeper, deeper, deeper into this identity of the godly when he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. Again, it's not a random list. It's not arbitrary. He didn't just arbitrarily throw it together. Okay? This list, this is an honorary list of titles that comes from Exodus 19. Okay, so when God is establishing the nation, he, he puts together or he ratifies the covenant that he makes with Israel, and this is what the Lord says. Now, therefore, this is like Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So these are foundational statements about the establishing of the nation of Israel, and Peter is applying them to the people of God, to the church, right? Peter is telling every person, every person that is united to Christ in every single beneficiary of the covenant of grace that the titles and the privileges that belong to Israel belong to you. Okay? So now, this is where we, as Baptists, we differ a little bit from our uh, dispensational and Presbyterian brothers. Okay? I'm not saying that they are not Christian. I'm just saying we just have a different view on this point. Okay? Our dispensational brothers, they would say that we don't have the same privileges and rewards of Israel. But the problem is, is when I read this text, Peter is, is labeling us with the same titles that he gave to the blood descendants of Abraham. And, I, and, and again, like our Presbyterian brothers, I love you. I'm not saying, I just disagree here. Look, they would say that there are people who benefit from the covenant of grace, but they don't share in all these privileges. There are people who are in the covenant of grace that are not priests, okay? That benefit from the, 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 that benefit from the Christ's work of the covenant and establishing the covenant, but are not priests, okay? So they would say, like, just like under the old covenant, there are those who are restricted from full access, okay? They are, because remember under the old covenant that, uh, Uncircumcised Gentiles couldn't, couldn't ever, could never be a priest, right? But when the Savior died and rose again, the curtain was torn in two, and he inaugurated a new and better covenant in everyone, everyone in this covenant, everyone, is a priest and a member of the royal priesthood, everyone. So every one of us, is a king's priest and have the privilege of offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. Amen? There's no more separation, family. There's no more priests and non-priests. That's gone. Everybody has equal access to God, equal honor, just as Abraham's blood descendants. But it's not because of our blood, family. It's because we're united to the rock. So not only are we the king's priests, verse 9 says we're also a holy nation. God chose Israel to be his people, delivered them with a mighty hand out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them, gave them laws that physically set them apart from other nations. And that he, he gave them laws to physically set them apart from other nations that were without God. Okay? And these physical laws concern food and clothing and circumcision. And God has called us a holy nation, and he calls us to obey him. But now it's not physical. It is physical, but it goes beyond that now. It's, now it's the heart. He wants you to obey him from the heart. Okay? And God came, and Christ came, and he 
tore down that wall of separation. He fulfilled the ceremonial laws. The nation of Israel is not limited now to a geopolitical nation. Now it's spread among the entire world to every people from every tribe and from every tongue. And you are his people and he has called you out to be separate. You ain't like these other people. You are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, and you are a people for his own possession, a people but that belong to him. You are literally his. You don't belong to you no more. This, look, Isaiah 43, 20 through 21 says this, my people, my chosen people, my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself. Got that? You belong to God. If you're, if you're a believer, you belong to God. Your money not yours. Your spouse is not yours. The kids are not yours. None of that stuff belongs to you. You belong to the Lord. Everything you got, you got from him, and you just stood in it. You don't belong to you, family. That's why you can't do what you want to do. You've been bought with a price. To serve the Lord. You are his people. We are his chosen people. He is our God. So, but you need, listen, understand this. There's absolutely no room for pride in this statement. The Bible says you are chosen, not choice. You understand the difference? You're chosen, not choice. Okay? God did not choose you because you was wise. He did not choose you because of your power or your noble birth. The Bible says he chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring that things that are down so that no human being could boast in the presence of God. He did not pick you because you're good. He picked you because he's good. You have to understand this. This is vital that you understand this about Christianity. Okay? It is absolutely critical that you understand this. If you flinch in this area, you need to go back. And go back. You're not right. You are saved because God is good. Okay. The truth about ourselves and how we should define ourselves and how we should define who we are is completely bound up in God's goodness. And if you attempt to define yourself any other way, you're wrong. You have to find your identity in Christ, the cornerstone. Okay? Because when we identify with Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and you trust him, you share in the honor that he's given. This is what verse 7 says. So the honor is for you who believe. Well, what honor is he talking about? Well, the, he's talking about the honor, the, pre, the honor that he, what he was talking about, the cornerstone, the precious and chosen, cor, precious and chosen cornerstone. Sorry, I'm getting a little excited. <laughs> right? The precious and chosen cornerstone. That same honor, that same preciousness, that same regard that God has for him, he has for you because you believe. You're chosen because he's chosen. So even though the ungodly reject the cornerstone, God honors him anyway. And he calls him chosen and precious, and we are seen the same way in the sight of God because we're united to him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you're united to Christ, do you believe what the word of God says about his people? Do you believe that you're God's personal prized possession? You're his treasure? That God bore you on his shoulders? He carries you in his arms? That he holds you in his hand? He sat you at his feet? That you bear his name? You bear his name. He loves you with a jealous love. He loves you with a fatherly love. He moved heaven and earth to save you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You belong to him. You are his. He is your God and you're his people. 
Do you believe it, family? So thus far, what we've seen is that godly people in a godless world, they long for the word of God, and they identify, entirely identify, with the cornerstone. And Peter goes on to show to show us in verses 11 and 12 that godly people in a godless world live as honorable warriors. I'll explain to you where I got that from. Verses 11 and 12, here's what they read. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter uses the same method method that he did in the earlier parts of the passage. He identifies the godly people, and then on the basis of that identification, he's telling you this is how you need to act. Okay, because of who you are, because of what he's titling you, this is the way you need to act in response. Okay, so in other words, he's saying, you, godly men, you, godly woman, you are a sojourner, you are an exile, and on account, of those, on account of that fact, you need to do these two things. You need to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and you need to keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. You need to war against the flesh, and you need to live honorably. Those are the two things you're supposed to do because you're a sojourner and you're an exile. So, family, understand, you're in a war. You understand that? You are in a war with your flesh. You are in a war. This is, and listen, when he says passions of the flesh, this is way, this is far more deeper than just a reference to ungodly sexual desire, okay? He is referring to any desire, any desire that would turn your heart and your affection away from Jesus, Okay? The passions of the flesh is any excessive craving or self-indulgent desire that would displace proper affection for God. That could be anything. Do you hear me? You could love your kids more than you love Jesus. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's not right. This command is set in direct opposition to the commands in verses 2 and 3, which Peter says you're supposed to long for and crave spiritual milk. You're supposed to actually long for that. You're supposed to desire for that. And then you're supposed to war against these desires. So the desires that's going to pull you away from God, you need to kill them. You need to crush them. You need to make war against them. But the desires that's going to bring you closer to him, you need to long for those. Okay? And he says to abstain from them. Literally means separate yourself from them. Put distance between you and that. Okay? So in short, he's commanding the godly people to remove yourself from any excessive craving that will turn you away from the Lord. This command and the reason and the basis for this command is supposed to be done because you are a sojourner and an exile. So a sojourner means that you are a stranger, you're a foreigner who is living among a people that are not his people. Family, you are God's people united to Christ. And God made you a foreigner in this world. These are not your people. These people out here, out here, those are not your people. These are your people right here. These are your people. Do you understand that? An exile is a temporary resident that's only passing through. Uh, It's a a person who is staying in a place long enough to unload cargo and take care of some bit. I'm just here to use the bathroom. I'll be out in a second. Okay? And people, there are people who who are only, they know they're going to be there temporarily for a short time. And listen to me, family. People if you know you're going to be in a place temporarily, you don't make the same decisions. You know that. Anybody in here ever live overseas and you knew you was coming home? You're not buying a house. You're not doing that. Every decision you make is different because I'm not going to be here long. 
If I'm on vacation, I might not even unpack my bags. So my family used to live overseas in St. Martin, right? We didn't think we was leaving. We thought we was going to be there forever. And then my mom was like, you know what? We're moving back to the United States. And from that second, I made every purchase differently in my life. I would go in the store. I would be like, ooh, I like that. I got the money to buy it. That's not fitting in my suitcase, not buying it. Right? Every decision that I made moving forward was based on the fact that I'm about to leave. There was this young lady. She's a very beautiful young lady. Me and my friends used to talk about, oh, I would love to be her boyfriend. Right? That, and one day, she saw me across the courtyard, and she was like, and she walked up to me. And me and my friends like, she's coming towards us. And she, and she stopped, and she said, Corey, I saw you across the hallway, and you are a very charming, good-looking young man. I'm going to let you take me to the movies. And I said, nope. And all my friends thought I was crazy. You know why? I said no. Because I said, I don't want to get in a relationship with you because I'm going to like you and want to stay. That's how you act when you're a believer. This ain't your home, family. This ain't your home. You don't start getting into relationships and doing things that's going to anchor your soul to this place. Fleshly passions are those ungodly desires and lusts that are associated with the ungodly people in this ungodly world. Okay? But this is not your home. You're not going to be here long. Do not anchor your soul to this place. You are a stranger, you are a pilgrim, and you are an exile, and you need to make every decision based on that fact. And Peter goes on to explain further how the godly are supposed to be honorable warriors. If you look at verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. Okay? Uh, it means to keep your behavior, your conduct, your way of life good. As a matter of fact, some translations simply say to live a good life. Okay, so this command is to live a good, upstanding, moral life to the extent that ungodly unbelievers will see it. Okay? And the reason for that is stated in verse 12. It says, so that, or so the purpose of it is, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on a day of visitation. Okay? So Peter assumes that you're going to be living in such a, a life that people are going to be able to see your lifestyle is good. He assumes that, the godly, that godly people are going to be slandered. He assumes that the godly are going to be defamed and they're going to be vilified, but they will eventually be vindicated. Okay? This is because the reason that this is going to happen is because ungodly people are biased against God. Okay? They're biased. Colossians 1 says that you were, you, that you were hostile against God in your mind. So he was a, he, God had hostility toward you because you sinned, but you was just as hostile toward him. Okay? So ungodly people unsaved people, people that don't know the Lord, people that have not tasted that the Lord is good, are biased against God, and because you are united to him, they're biased against you. So the smoke is coming. Okay? And so much so, they're so biased against God and his people, so much so that even when they see the good that you do, they're going to say it was evil. You're going to be doing good stuff, and they're going to say that it's evil. But in spite of this, there's hope. Listen to why. Because the impact of your witness will not be lost. Right? It says this, that the ungodly world that we live in, they're going to see your deeds, and then it says they will glorify God on the day of visitation. What that means is Jesus is coming back. So this verse could mean it could have either a positive or a negative connotation to it, right? If it's positive, it could mean that on a day of visitation, that conviction and conversion is going to happen in those people who witness the good deeds of the Christian, and then they'll respond and turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, okay? Or it could mean in a negative sense that, that uh, more in line with like Philippians 2.11, 
where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because of God's might and power and judgment. It will compel them to acknowledge the fact that this is true, but not because they believe, but because God is so great and they can't deny it anymore. That makes sense to you? Okay. I believe it could be both. It could be, it could be both of those things could happen to some people. One thing could happen to some people. One thing could happen something different to the other people. Because this is not inconsistent with the way the Lord operates in the world. God is more than capable of doing two things at one time. We're the one that have a problem with multitasking. God has no problem multitasking. Okay? We've been going through the minor prophets for the last few weeks, and all we've been seeing constantly over and over and over again is that God, when he comes with judgment for one group of people, he comes with salvation at the same time. So he'll be judging one group and mercy for the other one. He's he's destroying this group, and in that destruction, he's building something for the next group. Because he's, listen, we've consistently seen through those sermons that interwoven into God's wrath is his grace, right? He's just and justifier. When the lamb was slain, the church was saved. He could do two things at one time, family. But we need to go back. We need to, we need to backtrack because I got ahead of myself. I got all excited and everything. So if you go back and look at the stated goals that Peter gives to us in each one of these sections, right? If you look at verse 5, um, it says, We are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. That's the purpose of you being built up. You're being built into a spiritual house so that you could be a priesthood and so that you could offer spiritual sacrifices. That's the goal, okay? And then in verse 9, it says that you were chosen and that the purpose of you being chosen is that so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in verse 12, it says that the purpose of you living honorably and and abstaining from the flesh is so that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And every one of those purposes that I just read to you, they have a similar end. That's to worship the true and living God. Okay? The purpose for which you and I exist is to worship Yahweh. Okay? Remember we read this in Isaiah 43, 21. He says, my chosen people, the people whom I'm formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. That's why you here, family. You're not here to get new cars. You're not here to, 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 to do, you're, you're going to do a lot of stuff, but the, the, the goal of all of that is the worship of Christ. Amen? So as his royal priests, we offer our lives as spiritual sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, sacrifices were administered by the priests, right? They were ceremonies, but they, what they are, they're ceremonies of worship to show that how holy God is, to glorify God. And our Savior died, he rose again, so no other sacrifices are needed, but that doesn't mean that worship ended. When he got out the grave, all that means is that worship intensified and extended to a whole bunch of more people. So you were chosen in verse 9 in order to proclaim the excellencies of the Savior. This means that we are chosen in order to declare to the nations God is good. That's why God chose you, to declare that God is good. That means that all evangelism and all witnessing is doxological. Evangelism is, is about the worship of God. You, you, you talk to people about Jesus so that they could be saved, but the goal is that they would worship him. You, we should be jealous for God's worship. That's why you go, so that people that didn't used to worship God worship him now. They owe him that. God saved you so that you would pray and you would sing and that you would live and that you would obey and that you would witness in front of the watching world, the watching, unbelieving world. He did it so that they would see. And God, listen, God saved you to shout hallelujah loud enough so them people could hear. So in this passage, 
Peter is constantly, constantly, constantly turning our attention to our identity in Christ. In verses 2 and 3, he describes us as the godly. He describes us as those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and we must therefore long for the pure word, unadulterated, unfiltered word of God. In verses 4 through 10, he tells us that the godly must identify with the cornerstone. And in verses 11 through 12, he states that the godly must live as honorable warriors, fighting the passions of the flesh based on the fact that your identity is a sojourner and an exile. And family, it's foolish for you to try to find your identity in anything else, anything else other than Jesus Christ. So to live godly in a godless world means that we define ourselves the way that God does, and that's in Christ. That's how you should be defining yourself, in Christ. You have the great privilege of being God's chosen one, God's living temple, God's royal priest, and you get that privilege all because Jesus was all those things first for you. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, help us, Lord. Lord God, help us to believe all the things that we heard today. Help us to believe that our salvation is completely and utterly bound up in the the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not because we are good, O Lord, but it's because of you. Help us in our unbelief, God, to turn to you. Help us, God, to obey your word, repent and believe in faith, God, so that we might be united to our great God and our cornerstone, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.